Hello and welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. Um, this is part six, I believe, of our study in this uh, fairly lengthy book. So this is going to take us about 20, 22 or so lessons to get through. And today in part six, we begin another section of the book. We start in chapter one, which is an introduction to the book, to its context, to its intended audience. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we had letters to the seven churches in Asia, to those to whom this letter is written. Now we start a new section. <clears throat> Beginning in chapter 4, carrying through chapter 7, we are going to see, um, we're going to see things that people don't see. <laughs> we're going to see things that are generally concealed and hidden, things we're not allowed to see. Remember in chapter 1, um, the revelator is told I will, that he will be shown th things that are and things that will be. We're going to get a peek behind the curtain here. Now, when you read um, Daniel in some of his prophecy, uh, there are times when he sees things that the angel of the Lord says, don't write that down. Don't tell people about this. And Paul similarly starts to write things and then the spirit moves him and says, don't, don't tell people that. Because there are certain things we're just not capable of understanding or capable of seeing, and it has to be put in a way that our human minds can see and understand, which is where we run into some challenges with Revelation because sometimes we try to make something fit. These, there's these images and these visions and these numbers and words we don't understand, so we try to rationalize that somehow. It's not really meant to do that. What it's meant to do is convey in a way that we understand something that is inherently not understandable because we live in this reality not the reality that's to come, where we will understand and we will see and we will experience. But we begin in chapter 4, and I can't stress enough that this is a letter that was um, not written to us, but it was written for us, okay? So we can learn from it and we can understand God through it, but we are not the intended audience, so do not make it about yourself. Understand it the way they understood it. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute. If you were to read Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Revelation, you could take a highlighter. And I encourage you, when you read Revelation, by the way, to read it straight through. Whether it's the whole book or whether it's one chapter, read it straight through. Then read it again. Then read it again. Read it quickly. Don't get hung up on the way things are described or these symbols or these things that we think are as coded language. Read it all the way, uh, read it all the way through and read it quickly. And then do it again and again. And then we can dig in a little deeper as we are right now. So uh, he said here, like the sound of a trumpet. And I said, you can go through Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Revelation, and you get highlight. Every time that the author uses a phrase like something or something like or as in or in the manner of, these, these words of simile that are used by the author, he uses that because there are not words in human language to describe what he's seeing. And so he describes what he's seeing in ways that he can understand. Does, did it literally sound like a trumpet blast? No. But it had it had a resonance and it was piercing, and it 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 was sudden. It was like a trumpet blast, but it wasn't literally a trumpet blast. And later we'll see that uh, in descriptions of colors and descriptions of scenery 
and descriptions of creatures that seem very strange to us, and even in the use of certain numbers. Um, we'll get into the numbers a little later in chapter 6, but we'll, we'll deal with them some here, so we'll, we'll get to that, though. So, he heard uh, something like the sound of a trumpet speaking, and it said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit. That means he was in a spiritual realm, or he was taken up at, at, in, in a spiritual form. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a uh, sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Now, an emerald and a rainbow are not the same thing, right? Uh, rainbow means it's colorful. It, it, it spans the spectrum of colors. And the emerald, it, it's brilliant. Uh, again, this is not... We see this a lot with descriptions of heaven or heavenly realms emeralds, streets of gold, pearly gates. Um, the streets aren't literally paved with gold, you understand, because, because gold is material. Gold is earthly. It's worldly. It's not supernatural. It's not beyond this, this realm. It's not beyond this reality. No, they looked like they were paved with gold. We'll understand it when we see it. We'll understand it when we experience it, when we get there. But right now, just know it's the streets are paved with gold. And think of it that way. That's why it's described that way. It's not meant to be literal. It's meant to describe it in a way that we can comprehend because what he is seeing is beyond human comprehension or expression. So, don't get hung up, <clears throat> all right? So, uh, like an emerald in appearance. Verse 4, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. All right, now I said we're going to get into the numbers more in chapter 6 in terms of what they mean. Just know this. We use numbers as a way of describing quantity or defining quantity. We use numbers to tell how many of something there are or... Uh, what time it is, uh, that's a whole different discussion of uh, the construct of time. But um, we use numbers to define amounts of things, quantity. Um, numbers are not used that way by the Jews. Uh, they were not used that way in the first century. They were used as more of a qualitative term. Or they were used to symbolize something. Um, and, and, and again, we'll We'll get into more of what the numbers mean and, and how they were used by ancient people. But understand this. When you read in, say, for instance, um, when Jesus feeds the multitude, all right, he feeds the 5,000. It says there's 5,000. They're not accountants, and they weren't trying to be accountants. They weren't going for precision or accuracy with their numbers, with the literal number. What they were going for was an idea. 5,000 just means a lot. It means a lot. Um, it's not even like an estimate. It's a lot. It's expressing an idea. Um, when we see in, we'll see it in Revelation. Um, you'll see it um, at Pentecost, where 3,000 are baptized. It's not exactly 3,000. They're not accountants, and they're not using numbers like accountants. They're using numbers to say, everybody there. Okay, a, a complete group of people, a lot of people, everything, all of them, whatever. Different numbers are used different ways to describe different things. That's how the Jews spoke. That's how they wrote. And that's how this is written in order that it would be conveyed in a manner that was understandable to the audience. 
Okay. Now, when he says he sees 24 thrones with 24 elders, most people would, would say, because not only are numbers qualitative in a sense, descriptive for Jewish people, they're also very significant. And sometimes, again, their significance cannot be applied literally. It's an understanding of something. So we have 24 thrones. To most people, this represents the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you know a little bit about your Bible, you know a little bit about history. There are not always 12 apostles. Judas kills himself. Matthias is added. Barnabas is called an apostle. Uh, Paul is called an apostle. James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle. Jesus is called an apostle. You have 17 people in Scripture that are specifically referred to as apostles, and there's probably more that were referred to that way uh, at the time. But 12 was an important number, and 12 was traditionally the number of apostles. Likewise, the 12 tribes. Well, there were sometimes more and there were sometimes less. Sometimes they split. Sometimes they disappeared. That's just the number. There's 12 of them because that number matters. And so they carry that forward, even though it doesn't literally describe how many tribes there were at any particular time. There's 12 apostles, even though there's not. There's 12 tribes, even though there's not. And 24 thrones and 24 elders to represent the completion of a nation to represent Israel and Christ and the completeness of God's people. 12 and 12, 24. Does that, how literal do you want to take that? I mean, it, it's, it's numbers that are not precise because they're not intended to be. They're intended to be descriptive. It means the apostles. It means the tribes. And they're both seen together here in this scene in heaven to describe that we're witnessing the completed nation, the complete representation of the nation of God's people that are that are here, okay? So that's that's important. Uh, similarly, look in verse 5. Again, we'll get into the numbers and their meanings in chapter 6. So stay tuned, because we will break down some of these numbers and what they meant to the people. But this is just a little preview, okay? Don't let it throw you. The numbers are describing things, and they're describing things in a way that, that the people who read it could understand, and even we don't understand, because our language is different. But it's meant to convey a sense of something that we need help understanding, because we're not in heaven, and we're not in this form capable of understanding it. So let's go to verse 5 here. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, the number seven means something to them. Okay, It represents an idea. Um, there's no significance to the number seven in a qualitative way or in, in a quantitative way. There is only significance to the number seven in a qualitative sense because it expressed an idea, an idea of completion or perfection. The number three is also important in that regard. Lots of numbers mean lots of different ideas. They're not meant to express quantity. Keep it in mind. Now, he says the seven spirits of God. So what are the seven spirits of God? Okay, we, we have the Trinity, and we know that you know the, the God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if we look, let's look at a, a quick verse here in Isaiah, another interesting book. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 2 here. 
the spirit of the Lord will rest on it. There's seven spirits mentioned here. This is what is being referred to, okay? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and 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 well, I miscounted on my fingers there, but spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. There we go. Seven of them. Seven spirits mentioned in Isaiah and the and in Revelation, we have seven spirits with seven flames uh, around the throne. Uh, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Sea of glass, uh, like crystal. Again, terms that are descriptive, not literal as we understand them, but descriptive in a way that helps us understand what this person is seeing that we couldn't comprehend. Sea of glass was often a phrase that was used to describe a massive number of people or the completeness or the fullness of a nation. So we're seeing here represented the fullness of a nation, the nation of God, God's people. We saw that with the 24 thrones, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, the 24 elders. We see a sea of glass as they understood these words in the first century, as Jewish people understood these idioms and phrases that are very difficult for us to translate and understand. What he's seeing is something brilliant, something beyond human comprehension, and the fullness and completeness of the nation of God's people. Now we describe these creatures, okay? The first living creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Like, 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 like. Is that literally what they are? No. But it, it's like that. It's the closest that the, the author can describe it for us to understand. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night. They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. All right. What does all this mean? What are these four creatures? Why do they look so strange? What do we make of this? Well, there are some who believe that this is a description of the cherubim and the seraphim, which are masculine and feminine descriptions of angels. Um, and it very well could be a description of the cherubim and the seraphim here. When we see in scripture things like the dedication of the temple the, and, and other places in scripture where we have thunder and earthquakes uh, occurring and God's presence, uh, that's often uh, used as a reference point to say this is the cherubim and the seraphim uh, going before God, that God is, is, like with the temple, literally moving in. 
God is entering this place and the cherubim and the seraphim kind of go before him, right? Um, and not necessarily just to clear the area, which they do, but to make sure all the eyes are pointed in the right direction. Um, they are announcing the presence of God to make sure all eyes are looking up and pointing in the right direction. What have we said that this is a book of? This is a book of worship. This is all about worship. It's all about looking to God, being oriented in the right direction. That's what worship is. And despite all the hardship and the trouble that's going to come the way of those seven churches, he says, be pointed toward God, orient yourself toward the king. The book of Revelation is not going to tell you who to vote for. It's not going to tell you what party to back, what legislation to support. It's not going to win a culture war. It's not going to uh, lead a political movement. What the book of Revelation will do is tell you who the real king is and which direction to face in order to worship him. And this chapter certainly serves that theme. Yes, it's full of things that we don't understand, symbols, numbers, we can understand what those symbols and numbers might have meant to the people who read this and heard this originally. Um, and we can kind of make some kind of facsimile to what we would understand it to be. But all of it is meant to describe something in human terms because it's indescribable otherwise. And it's the best way we can get it into our head. Now I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we have the, these beings that are kind of crying out to the Lord and getting all the eyes directed toward the Lord. And then we have all the 24 elders casting down their crowns and bowing and saying, worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power. There are people who criticize um, our faith and who ask a question that is a kind of a fair and difficult question. What is it with God? What kind of a narcissist, what kind of a selfish, egotistical God is it that you serve? Um, he's constantly wanting worship and praise. Does he really need people around him all the time telling him how great he is? What kind of God is that to serve? Good question. Well, we understand when we see celebrities, for instance, with an entourage, people around them, yes men and people that will get whatever they need that will you know, take care of them. Um, and we think of these people as sycophants. We think of them as people who are into some sort of celebrity worship or hero worship that will, that will do anything for someone because they need to constantly remind them how good they are to feed that ego and feed that narcissism. That's what we understand that relationship to be like on earth. We need to adjust our framework when it comes to the praise of God. It is not that God is in constant need of worship and reassurance uh, about who he is. It is that God is something that you never get over. An example, I have a, uh, some friends, a couple of different sets of friends, actually. I know, surprising, I have any at all. But I do have a couple of different sets of friends, and their families, their thing to do is to go to Disney World. They love to go to Disney World. Uh, multiple times a year, they go to Disney World. That is a huge, huge facility. When you count all the different parks and all the acreage, I mean, it's massive. There's so much to do. 
the first time you ever step foot in a place like that, you just kind of are almost overwhelmed. Our family went a few years ago to Disney World with another family. And that family had done it a lot. This is one of our friends. They go multiple times a year. We stepped into the park that first day. And the first time all of us, I'd been when I was younger, but the first time all of us had been to Disney. And it was like, oh my goodness. There's just so much. I don't know where to go first. It's overwhelming. It's almost uncomfortable, almost disconcerting because it's very confusing and very, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, almost not enjoyable, but these people that do it over and over and over, I wonder sometimes how, how can you do that over and over and over? Uh, and it still be fun because nothing can ever top the first time you walk in and go, whoa. But see, they've gotten good at it. And they know where to go and what times and how to do this and how to do that. They know all the secrets. And they actually find it more enjoyable because they're able to get more out of it because they've kind of gotten past that overwhelming sense and made it more manageable. The thing is, with God, you never get over that. That's what the vision is meant to say. Here are these creatures that are standing around praising God, offering praises, calling out, directing the eyes. And then what happens? All these 24 elders that are seated around the throne, they throw their crowns on the ground and they bow faces down and they, and they say, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You can't help but praise God in his presence. It's not an ego that needs to be fed. It's not a narcissism that needs to be managed. It is that you never get over God. You never get over being overwhelmed with who he is. And it is a compulsion of the heart that is oriented to God to say, to you be the glory and the honor and the power. For you created all things and because of you they, they existed and were created. We offer praise and worship to our God because we can do nothing else in his presence. And one day we'll be in different bodies with different eyes and we'll see things differently and we'll understand what this book is talking about. Until then, we got to do our best to try and put it in a way we can understand, knowing everything we know about what those who originally heard it would have understood. Next time, chapter five. Hope you can join me then. Thank you.